Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. In the gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Give your ear to God's holy word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more And they likewise each received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. As far as the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it reveals your character, the way that it reveals your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. And Lord, we pray as we ponder and consider it today that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would conform us more and more into his image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to answer a question that I know you have asked yourself from time to time. And uh, the question is, if I have an apartment or a house full of kids from the ages of, say, 5 to 12, and I want to start a riot, what should I do? And the answer to that question is, do what my wife Rachel did, and reenact this parable, but do it with cookies instead of denarii. And then make sure that none of the kids are yours, so you have even less control than normal, right? When we lived in Raleigh, we had a, um, a, a Bible study for kids in our neighborhood apartment complex, and they would come over and learn a Bible lesson and, uh, and then go back their way, and in the next weeks was going to be this parable. And so Rachel had this wonderful idea, let's reenact this parable. And so she told all of them, Next week is going to be great. Bring your friends. Anybody who comes will get cookies. 
Anyone who comes is going to get cookies. And so they all showed up very excitedly the next week, and they were on their best behavior, and they came in, and they spread around our little living room, down the couch, and big smiles, fully expectant faces, hands out, you know, as if they're going to receive the sacrament. And Rachel goes around, and she's giving out cookies, and this person gets a cookie, and this person gets a cookie, and then this person gets three cookies, and then this person gets five cookies, and this one gets two cookies. And so she just distributed the cookies, and man, some people were very excited about this lesson. They were up and dancing around, and others of them were, they were crestfallen, and she had this group, everyone that got one cookie. She had this group around her, complaining, fallen faces, and they all said to her, Miss Rachel, it's not Okay, so I've already told this story before you've heard it. <laughs> or perhaps it's maybe that this story has played out in your own life around your own dinner table. Or it's a, it's a phrase that's played out in your own mind at your office or at your church. How easy is it for us to exclaim, to utter those words, it's not fair when we see a grace or a mercy extended to another, when we forget Jesus' point in this parable that all of the Christian life from beginning to end is of grace. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, Jesus tells a story about a landowner who does something that seems unfair. Even in the reading of it, probably many of us our blood starts to boil. It seems unfair. It's a perplexing story because the landowner, we know, represents the Lord in his ways. And it forces us to reconsider our notions of mercy and God's justice. And we would expect that those outside of the church, we may expect Pharisees in our gospel readings to take issue with God's mercy, that they would murmur and accuse as they often did when Jesus met or ate with tax collectors and sinners. But our parable today suggests that even believers can struggle at God's generosity because you see the parable that we've just read is not actually directed at the Pharisees. It's directed at Peter and the 12 disciples. It's situated in this last block of teaching in Matthew's gospel from 18 to 20 before Jesus goes to the cross. From 18 to 20, Jesus is teaching the disciples about discipleship and the life of the church. And it comes right after the story of the rich young ruler, a man who's, who thought that by keeping God's commandments, he would earn God's favor, and he came up to Jesus and wanted to know what else he might do. Right? And so you remember the story Jesus tells him. Sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, and then come, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. But the ruler couldn't do it. He loved his wealth, and so we know he kept his physical treasures on earth and lost his treasure in heaven. And as the disciples watched the sorrowful young ruler trudge away, Peter has a thought, and he says to Jesus, We've left everything to follow you, therefore what will we have? How, Jesus, are you going to reward us 
for our service to you. And don't miss, this is what Jesus tells him. Jesus says to him, says to him, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's chapter 19, verse 28, just before our parable. The regeneration is the restoration of the world, the new heavens, the new earth, after the resurrection. At that time, Jesus will reign in all of his power and goodness, and he affirms for Peter that the disciples will have unique honors. Now, we don't know exactly what it means for them to sit on thrones and judge, but in some undefined way, the disciples will lead when Jesus renews the world. Indeed, Jesus follows it up by saying, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Verse 1929. But then he warns, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You see, Jesus hears an off note in Peter's question. The treasure offered to the rich young man wasn't heavenly doubloons, right? It was Jesus himself, who is the treasure in heaven. You see, Peter, along with the rest of us, can forget that whatever we receive from Jesus, from salvation to thrones to honors to houses to family to whatever, are not earned but a grace. And so Jesus tells him this parable. And as he does, he illustrates for the twelve the gracious nature of his kingdom in a way that reveals our grudging hearts, and then he finally asserts his generous rights. So for those of you that like the outline, there's the outline for you. The gracious nature of his kingdom, our grudging hearts, and his generous rights. First, the gracious, gracious nature of his kingdom. Jesus tells Peter, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. For, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this story. Here, let me restate the parable for you briefly. A landowner hired out day laborers to work in his vineyard. And customarily, they would work from sun up to sundown, or roughly 6 a.m., to 6 p.m. And the landowner goes out and he finds a group at daybreak and he agrees to pay them the standard wage, one denarius per day. And a denarius is about uh, what someone would need to live on for the next day. Okay, this is the average wage for a day laborer. And vineyards, of course, are plentiful in the region, so this is, this is the sort of thing that really would happen. But vineyards also throughout the scriptures, symbolize God's people. You can see that in places like Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, among other places. And so as a symbol, the vineyard pointed to God's pleasure in his people and the desire that they would bear the fruit of righteous, holy living. These are all things that Peter and the disciples would have understood. Being God's people working for the Lord, cultivating his people as leaders, as those who have uh, been Jesus' disciples, 
bearing fruit for God, having holy lives. These are contexts that, that Peter would have understood. But with all of Jesus' parables, this one is true enough to life to make contact, but strange enough to make a point. You see, as the day passed, the landowner continually goes out to find men standing idle in the marketplace at the third and the sixth and the ninth hours, promising to simply pay them whatever is right. You can see that in verses 3 through 5. And then at the eleventh hour, he finds a group of men standing idle, and he hires them and sends them into the vineyard. And then the day ends quickly after, and the owner dispatches the foreman to pay the workers their wages, beginning with those hired at the 11th hour and all the way up to the first. All right now, all of a sudden, the parable's strange. Okay, it's strange enough that a landowner would seek laborers at 5 p.m., right before the day ends. And it's stranger still that he would pay them first. But the biggest surprise comes in verse 9, where it says, When those who came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. That is, they got a full day's wage for one hour of labor. And all of these strange things in the parable serve to highlight the gracious nature of the master. Look, in case you thought that Maybe the landowner is just a bad businessman. Maybe he has no sense. But nobody hires out laborers with one hour to go because he needs them. You can always just wait for the next day, right? He doesn't need them. And he certainly doesn't pay them a full day's wage for one hour of labor because he has to. This is an owner who's not worried about what he might get out of his laborers, but what he might give to them. He's into the marketplace saying, don't be lost. Don't be idle. Don't be ruined. Come into my vineyard and be with me. And I know there are some of you here today who are considering coming to Christ later in life or have come to Christ later in life. And you worry that you won't be accepted because of the years wasted in sin and on yourself. But you need to see in this parable the master going out into the marketplace, even at the 11th hour, calling men out of spiritual sloth to receive grace and mercy far beyond any, any service that they might offer. And you need to take the salvation that Jesus is offering while you can. See his grace and mercy. And remember the words of Pastor J.C. Ryle. He said, the thief on the cross was saved at the 11th hour so that none would despair, but only one saved so that none would presume. The master goes out seeking all to come to salvation in him. Take him up. Come into the vineyard. All who come to God through Christ God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, as Psalm 103.10 says. There are no second-class children in God's kingdom. All are equally washed with Christ's blood, clothed in Christ's righteousness, all justified, accepted, and raised up by Him on the last day. 
True faith in Christ, whether it's a day old or 50 years old, justifies a man equally because true faith in Christ grasps hold of Christ's righteousness offered through his death and resurrection. In the parable, did not every single worker get a denarius? It's a denarius. It's a wage. And so does that imply that we earn our salvation? Lots of angular things in this parable. Let's talk about a few of them. Do we earn our salvation? Is God paying us back for good works? No. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end that we're saved by grace alone, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What about all this working then? We don't earn our salvation, but the Bible does teach us that true saving faith, true saving grace is sanctifying grace. That those who are really made righteous by the blood of Christ will become more righteous in their lives, as Paul says in the very next verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by our good works, but we are necessarily saved to good works. Did you catch it? That God prepared beforehand, ones that he's made for you, that they themselves are gifts that he gives for you. So our initial salvation is of grace, and the works God gives us to do are of grace, and yes, even the way that he rewards it is of grace. And the Bible does teach that God gives rewards. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that each one will receive a reward according to his works, but the Bible never says that we earn these rewards. That what we do merits them. God gives in line. He gives according to them. But it's not because we earn them. Instead, Paul says that the sufferings that we have in this life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that God will give us in the next. The Belgic Confession, one of our secondary standards here at this church, does a wonderful job summarizing this on its um, article on sanctification. It says this. Let me quote it for you. So then, we do good works, but not for merit. For what would we merit? Rather, we are indebted to God for the good works that we do, and not God to us, since God is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Yet we do not wish to deny that God rewards good works, but it is by grace that God crowns these gifts. That's Article 24 in the Belgic Confession. When we forget that, that all of the Christian life is grace from first to last, that God crowns whatever we do with his grace, then we will develop our grudging hearts. We will develop grudging hearts. And that's what this parable reveals, our grudging hearts, the second point. It's wonderfully illustrated by that first group that we all identify with from time to time. It says this in verse 11. 
And when they had received it, when they had received the denarius, they complained against the landowner. That word complained there is the same word used of Israel grumbling at God in the wilderness in, uh, in the Greek Old Testament in Numbers 14. Right? Nobody has the same looks, intelligence, abilities, graces, or slices of pie at the potluck. Right? It's inevitable. And when we notice that, it's easy for us to be tempted to grumble like Israel did in their tents in the wilderness, which is why Paul exhorts the Philippian Christians to do all things without grumbling or complaining, and that by doing so, they would shine like stars in the midst of the heavens in a crooked and perverse generations, Philippians 2, verse 15. You know you're falling prey to a grudging heart when you're not happy when others receive some grace, some gift from God. And especially, you know that you're developing a grudging heart when you're like the first, the group of the first people in this parable or like the kids in the story I told, when you're unhappy, when you receive a grace from God. Stop and think about that. To show up to your neighbor's house and be given a cookie and be unhappy about it. Or to work for a normal day's wage, exactly what you said you would get, and to receive it and complain. Why does that happen? Why do we do that? It says in verse 10, They thought they would receive more. But everyone gets the same payment. One denarius. It's what someone needed to live. It's what you needed to survive. The denarius represents eternal life. Just as in the parable, is, just as it is in the parable, it is in real life. Some work long and hard at God's kingdom. And others believe in the Lord only at the very end of their life. And some come to faith and then return to the Lord in their old age. And lifelong disciples can look at these varying situations, these varying graces that God gives out and think, unfair, that's not fair. I grew up in the church. I worked harder. I did more. I deserve more. More than what? More than eternal life? More than the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ? Friends, sometimes you hear the same attitude maybe when you're visiting other churches, in the same way, in some way that people stress the hour in our church, right? We're glad that you've joined our church. The ones that we, who have been here the longest, have built. As long as you recognize you're not equal to us who have put in the time and the money and attended the work days, who've borne the heat of the day. It's not fair. We're not equal. I worked harder. I worked longer. Right? That attitude crops up, even in churches. Some people are like the rich young ruler. 
They promise, Lord, I'll do absolutely anything for you. And then when Jesus suggests they do something, they balk and they won't do it. But the greater danger for Peter and for those of us in the church, anyone who's been long in service to the Lord, is that we will actually do what God asks and then focus on our service rendered rather than on the Lord to whom we render it. Lord, why does she get to be a Sunday school teacher? I've been here for 15 years. Why is he a deacon? Why are we going with his idea instead of mine? I've paid, I tithe every week. Where's our focus? In the parable, Jesus calls us back to himself. He invites us to delight in, in his graces and gifts, but so as to love him more than his graces and gifts. Those who follow Jesus need to remind themselves that they will be with Jesus forever. And that is, in fact, our great reward. In the parable, Jesus is telling us that even you who love me can think long about the work and service and rewards and little about my salvation and grace and me. And when you do, he says, you risk becoming least in the kingdom. Friends, we can dr drift from our love for the Lord if, we, if our delight in our redemption fades while our pride in our service grows. We can drift from our love for the Lord and others if our delight in redemption fades and our pride in our service grows. If you have walked long with the Lord, it is worth asking yourself where your mind most naturally gravitates, towards Jesus and his grace or toward his gifts and your service. Pastor John Piper has a striking way of asking the question. He says, Would you like heaven if Jesus were not there? Would you like heaven if Jesus were not there? If all that was there was the thrones and the houses and the lands and the brothers and the sisters, would you still want to go? That's the question. In Genesis 29, 20, it says that Jacob served Laban seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. If you want your joy in the Christian life to return, you've got to take your eyes off of your labor and put them back on to your love. You see that? The seven, days, or the seven years passed like a few days. Why? Because his eyes were on his love and not on his labors. You can't be like that first group in verse 12 who are always comparing their service to the service of others. And to help us do that, Jesus asserts his generous rights by asking us three questions. The remainder of the parable in verses 13 through 16. We're going to look at them quickly as we close. In verse 13, the master comes to one in the first group 
Interesting that it's one. Maybe he's singling out Peter, or maybe he's singling out each of us. But he comes to one and he says, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The first question that Jesus asked calls us to remember that God is faithful and just. True to his word, the landowner gave the first group just as he had promised. Friends, God is faithful in his word to you. Remember, everyone, young and old, what you agreed with God for when you came to Christ. Was it that you would have prosperity in this world? Was it for a perfect family? For a low-stress life? Did you not come to God for grace? For the forgiveness of sins? For the love of God in Christ demonstrated on the cross? For every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him? For all things in the new heavens and the new earth as He sees fit along with His presence forever. God, the Apostle John reminds us, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful because he promised to do it. And just, not because you earned it, but because Jesus Christ paid for every single one of those sins at the cost of his own blood on the cross. And then he rose from the dead in triumph, so that he could grant you eternal life to be in his presence with him forever. That's what he promises you when you come to him. And he's faithful to you in a host of other ways too. Think of all those precious promises in the scripture. Hasn't he taken all of the sufferings that you've experienced in this life and bent them back for your good? As you look back on your life, can't you see the way that he's worked mercies and all of the things that you thought were difficult at the time? He's never left or forsaken you, but he's constantly present with you by his spirit. Hasn't he always provided for everything that you need? Not everything that you've wanted, but everything that you've needed for a godly life. Hasn't he given it to you? God is faithful and just to you in Christ. That's the first thing we need to remember. God is faithful and just. The second thing, God is sovereign. The landowner says in verses 14 and 15, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? When it comes to salvation and all of his gifts and graces, God is entirely sovereign. All things were made for him, and all things were made by him, including you and me. And Paul reminds us in Romans 9 that we are the clay, and he is the potter. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And many people recoil from Jesus' teaching of God's sovereignty because they're afraid that his sovereignty somehow makes us less than human. That now we are resigned fatalists, emotionally empty. In short, many people think that this teaching, to accept it, will crush you. But embracing God's sovereignty at a deep level will not cause you 
to lose your humanity. If that's you today, I want you to know that it won't crush you. In fact, it will make you, in a sense, uncrushable. If you don't believe me, look at Job. In the opening chapters of the book of Job, he loses everything. His health, his money, his house, his family, except for his wife, his friends. And he's not mechanical. He's not resigned. He grieves deeply and sincerely, but he's not crushed. Why? Because, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He understands God's sovereignty in assigning gifts and graces. And if you do so as well, then your joy in the Christian life and your joy in the Lord as you ponder him can return. It won't crush you in a sense. It will make you uncrushable. God is faithful and just to all that he has said to us in his word. God is sovereign. And finally, he's gracious. He's gracious. Jesus asks in verse 15, Is your eye evil because I am good? The evil eye is an idiomatic expression for being miserly or stingy or jealous. Okay, and so in context, this word good is the opposite. It means generous, overflowing. Are you going to be miserly because I am generous? Are you going to be stingy because I am giving? That's what the question that Jesus is asking. God's faithful and just. He's sovereign and he's generous. All of the Christian life is grace from first to last. You see that in the cross in the love of God demonstrated in the death of his son. What he was not forced to do, he gave because he loves us. He gave for your redemption because he's loving, because he's generous, because he's kind. What you have to realize is, excuse me, in every situation, doesn't matter what the situation is. It could be your family. It could be your marriage, your job, your church, your children, your friends. Whatever situation you're in, whatever part of your life you're thinking about, absolutely everyone, absolutely every single person says to themselves, I don't deserve this. And they mean it in one of two ways right? You're either throwing your hands up in frustration. I don't deserve this. They should behave way better than they are. I don't, I don't deserve this. I should be making way more money than that guy. All right? Or you're throwing your hands up in wonder. I don't deserve this. God doesn't owe me this job. I don't deserve this. Look how kind these people are to me. And if they knew a fraction of my sin, I don't deserve this. Right? It happens in one or two ways. In every day, every situation, 
that you can think of. And as you learn to remember that God is generous and to throw your hands up and wonder, I don't deserve this, it's not fair. As you learn to do it in your job, as you learn to do it with your family, as you learn to do it with your church, as you learn to do it for the grace of God and Jesus Christ, then you will begin to be able to do it for others, to rejoice when they receive the bonus, to rejoice when they come to Christ, to rejoice when their idea is taken rather than yours. You'll begin to consider others and not only your own interests. You'll begin to be like Paul exhorts the Philippian church to be. You'll be able to do all things without grumbling or complaining and shine like lights in the heavens. Friends, what would a community of people who are constantly rejoicing in the mercy of Christ and rejoicing in the graces and the gifts that he gives other people be like? How attractive would that be? How many more people would want to know what is God doing in those families? What is God doing in that church? Let's pray and ask that God would work such graces into our hearts and lives. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have given us in Christ, that you are faithful and just, faithful to your word to extend it to us just in your dealings, and that he has paid for our sins. We thank you that you're sovereign and you've called us out of darkness and into light. We thank you that you're merciful. You have not treated us according to our iniquities, but according to your great love. And so, Father, we rejoice in your mercy, and we pray that you would make us generous and kind people, that others might know your mercy as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.